True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Season 5 and the 55th episode of the True Crime Fix podcast. Firstly, if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. I'm not going to lie, I have been looking forward to covering this case for about two years, ever since I heard about it, but I've always held off because, for me, until recently, there has never been a satisfactory conclusion. For this episode... I'm heading to one of my favourite holiday destinations. The island of Malta is situated in the Mediterranean Sea. Despite being just off the coast of Italy, Malta was under the rule of the United Kingdom until 1964. It is warm whilst being very historic with a number of heritage sites on the island. A lot of Game of Thrones was shot there with Khaleesi and Drogo's wedding taking place at the Azure window on Gozo and the infamous line, when you play a Game of Thrones, you win or you die, was shot in a garden in the ancient town of Rabat. When talking about TV shows, it gives a great segue into talking about this week's victim. Everyone over the last few years has fallen in love with Adrian Dunbar's character, Ted Hastings, in Line of Duty, and his tenacity for chasing bent coppers. The lady that I'll be talking about today showed the same commitment when trying to uncover corruption, and that made some people uncomfortable, to the extent that it was the reason that she lost her life. So without further ado... This is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been written in memory of Daphne Caruana Galizia. Daphne Ann Vella was born on the 26th of August 1964 in Tower Road in the town of Salima on the island of Malta. She was the eldest of four sisters born to Michael Alfred Vella and his wife, Rose Marie Vella. As a young girl, she studied at St Dorothy's Convent, an all-girls school in the historic city of Medina, before moving on to St Aloysius College, a Catholic secondary school in Bukurkara. In 1985, she married Maltese lawyer Peter Caruana Galizia, 
It was not long after that that she began her career as a journalist. Her career in journalism started after the Maltese general election of 1987, when the Labour government was replaced by the Nationalist Party after a hard-fought struggle. It was a time that many reflected on as a dark period for the country, following independence which had resulted in significant violence and a strict division in the population. Three years earlier, after having been thrown into a police cell at the age of 18 for taking part in protests against the government, Daphne had never lost her outrage against the authoritarian Labour government, so therefore her activism of the 1980s was reborn in her journalism. In an article written by her husband posthumously, he stated, Her column was unusual for its time. A mix of commentary, opinion, reportage and analysis, which shone a light on the darkest shadows and brought a note of much-needed satire and humour to Malta's media. Shortly after her journalism career took off in 1988, Daphne gave birth to Peter and her's first son, Matthew. Matthew was shortly followed by Andrew and then Paul. Between the three sons, there is only a three-year age difference. During the 1990s, she worked as a columnist for both the Sunday Times of Malta and the Malta Independent newspaper. She would also go on to serve as the associate editor of the latter. Colleagues there remembered her as a meticulous and hard-working individual, though not always easy to get along with. In 1992, already the mother of three sons, Daphne enrolled in the University of Malta to study archaeology and anthropology, whilst continuing to write a regular column for the Sunday Times. She graduated with a degree in 1997. Her formidable skills as a writer, however, took her beyond just the political commentary which she provided for the tabloids. She was the publisher and editor for a number of other magazines, the type that you would find in a doctor's waiting room. One such publication was Taste and Flair, which was worlds apart from her usual gritty reporting. For example, in any given month, you could read in the tabloids about her claims of, say, a minister whom she accused of going to a brothel in Germany whilst on official government business, whilst in her magazine she would educate the reader about the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet and the pleasures of olive picking in the north of the island. Both equally gripping, both equally well written. By 2008, however, she was now running her own blog, Running Commentary, which she ran single-handedly. It quickly became Malta's most popular independent news website. Her readers, including her adversaries, followed her crusade against corruption, sleaze and crime. Everyone knew she was that rare creature in Malta, a maverick 
who acted independently of all authorities, political parties or financial interests. She received more stories and tip-offs than any other large media organisations. She therefore became a household name. But you don't become a household name without gaining significant enemies along the way. Over the years, she faced verbal and legal retaliation and occasional physical threats. Feces were posted through her letterbox. Even before Daphne began her blog in 2008, the family collie dog had its throat slit and was left on their front doorstep. Then, their terrier called Zulu was poisoned. Someone used a shotgun on another collie called Rufus. We saw him walking back towards the house covered in blood as my mother was driving us to school, recalled Daphne's son Matthew. The vet unfortunately had to put him down. In another act of violence against her, Paul, the youngest of Daphne's three sons, came home late one night and found flames licking up the side of her house. Petrol and car tyres had been placed there and set alight. Daphne and her husband Peter were asleep inside and were only saved by double-glazed security glass that the family had recently installed. After that, they built a wall around the property to create a compound. But it never stopped Daphne reporting in her blog about figures of power on the island. It was through her blog that she went about identifying corruption within the island nation, and for an island with a population of around 414,000, there was a hell of a lot of it. For example, she identified the following occurrences. An axing police commissioner and his son, who was also with the force, were forced to resign as she exposed their connection to dubious characters. A Maltese commissioner of the European Union, who had resigned under a cloud, was exposed for his entanglement with an alleged fraudster in the Bahamas. Police investigations then led to the arraignment of his daughters on money laundering charges. Daphne also investigated alleged connections between a bank in Malta, Politus Bank, Azerbaijani politicians and the Maltese Labour government's top personalities. But then came her biggest coup. When Daphne broke the story in 2016 about secret Panamanian companies that two top government politicians had set up just days after getting into power, she reached the peak of her influence. On the 3rd of April 2016, 2.6 terabytes of data, which equates to about 11.5 million documents, were leaked from law firm Musak Fonseca, which detailed financial and attorney-client information for more than 214,488 offshore entities, some dating back to the 1970s. 
the documents would come to be known as the Panama Papers. Various public figures worldwide had their dodgy business ventures now out in the open. People named in the papers included British Prime Minister David Cameron, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, Pakistan Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, King Salomon of Saudi Arabia, as well as various other heads of state. It also identified a number of sports organisations and stars, such as the head of FIFA and UEFA, Lionel Messi, ex-Formula One stars Nico Rosberg and Jarno Trulli, golfers Nick Faldo and Tiger Woods, pop mogul Simon Cowell and stars of the silver screen Jackie Chan and Emma Watson. You get the picture. The disclosures implicated at least 140 politicians from more than 50 countries in tax evasion schemes. It was significant news worldwide. Daphne exposed the offshore holdings of two prominent ministers in the Maltese Prime Minister Joseph Muscat's government. The first person who was accused was Keith Shremby, who was the chief of staff to the Maltese Prime Minister Muscat. The second was Minister for Energy and Health, Conrad Mizzi. According to the information which was obtained, in 1996, Shrembury established Casco Holdings, a group of companies providing various services and products within the fields of graphic art and engineering. The group's flagship company was Casco Paper. Shembury first set up an offshore shell account in January 2011. In June 2015, Shrembury purchased Panama companies from the Mossack Fonseca-related firm ATC Administrators Incorporated, specifically Hernville Incorporated and Tilgate Incorporated. Shembury asked the audit firm Nexia BT, who were Mossack Fonseca's franchise in Malta, to help him set up a New Zealand trust and associated company. Conrad Mizzi also used Nexia for that purpose. He said Shrembury suggested an overseas trust and brought him to Nexia. Therefore, Rotorua, who were the trust set up in Mizzi's name, and Hust, the trust created for Shembury, were both run by the Orion Trust based out of New Zealand. Under New Zealand law, the trusts pay no tax on foreign earnings. New Zealand regulators may demand this information, but do not disclose it to other governments. Mossack Fonseca flagged both Shembury and Mizzi as politically exposed persons due to their roles in the Maltese government. 
they also noted some negative coverage regarding the tender process for the supply of paper to the government. There was also concerns about the level of compensation received by Mizzy's wife. Therefore, FPB Bank of Panama refused to open accounts for the two, judging them as potential corruption risks. But there was now a paper trail. She then reported that a third secret company in Panama belonged to the wife of the Prime Minister, taking her case to the very centre of Maltese political power. As a result of her unrelenting investigative journalism, she was chosen by the Politico organisation as one of the 28 people most likely to influence the world in 2017. Organised crime, particularly oil smuggling from Libya, was a frequent subject for investigation, especially during the last 12 months of her life. Daphne's main target in the summer of 2017 was Adrian Delia, leader of the Nationalist Party since the prior September and therefore subsequently the leader of the opposition. Through her blogs, she accused him of operating an offshore client account for the Maltese owner of several properties that were involved in a prostitution racket in Soho in England. He and other politicians took liable cases after denying the allegations. Five liable cases, in fact. On the afternoon of October the 16th, 2017, Daphne prepared a plate of tomatoes and mozzarella for her eldest son, Matthew. He was now 31 and had graduated as a computer scientist. If that didn't keep him busy enough, he had also followed his mother's profession and became a journalist himself. As an expert on shell companies, he had shared a Pulitzer Prize for the Panama Papers leak, an award for achievements in newspaper, magazine and online journalism, literature and musical composition based out of the United States. He sometimes got caught up in his work and he forgot to eat, so when he was around his mum's house, she made sure to prepare him at least a salad. Daphne set down the plate and put on her shoes to go to the bank. The weather was warm in Bidnija, the northern village where she lived near the town of Mosta. She typed the latest blog's final words. There are crooks everywhere you look now. The situation is desperate. And she posted it to her website. Peter had left her a stack of bank checks with his signature. She could not access her own accounts after, as I mentioned earlier, she had claimed that Malta's economy minister had visited a brothel while on an official mission to Germany. He therefore had persuaded a court to freeze her assets. She left the house, but upon forgetting the checkbook, ran back in again. Once outside again, 
she got into her grey Peugeot 108. Unbeknownst to Daphne, across the valley, a man peered at the house. He watched Daphne climb into her car and called a number programmed into a cell phone that he was holding. The owner of that phone was waiting on a boat just offshore. When she was part way down the hill, the man on the boat sent a text message. REL1 equals on. A local farmer heard a loud pop and a scream, just in time to watch Daphne yank the emergency brake. Then, the gas tank exploded, launching her car into a field. The noise of the explosion resonated throughout Benija Valley. I knew it was a car bomb straight away, Matthew said, as he recalled hearing the explosion. He ran down the rocky village road barefoot, frantically calling his mother's cell phone, squinting in the afternoon sun. He heard a car horn blaring and smelled burning fuel and spotted a car ablaze in a field of wildflowers. When he reached the fireball, he thought for a few seconds that the twisted chassis couldn't be his mother's car because it was burning white and hers was charcoal grey. But then Matthew saw the beginning of the licence plate, QQZ, and then he circled the car helplessly screaming, searching for his mother's silhouette. He saw pieces of flesh on the road. Then he saw her, parts of her at least. A leg and other bits of body lay scattered around him in the field. Someone had finally silenced Daphne for good. On the day of her passing, October the 16th at 4.30pm, Prime Minister Joseph Muscat, the subject of a number of Daphne's stories, addressed a press conference, calling it a black day for freedom of expression. Local crime scene investigation units were on scene and discovered that the car bomb had been put under the driver's seat. At 7pm, Shortly after the investigation team had been announced, Daphne's family requested the abstention of Magistrate Consuela Sierra Herrera from the murder investigation. She was the duty magistrate when the murder had happened, however, had been the subject of a number of Daphne's stories back in 2010. Following a brief meeting, the magistrate accepted the request and stepped down. The following day, she was replaced by magistrate Anthony Vella. No relation to Daphne, of course. The story was starting to spread worldwide and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange offered €20,000 for information leading to the conviction of Daphne's killers. The Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat, told Parliament he had asked for help from America's FBI and would leave no stone unturned in the search for her assassins. 
Over the next two days, a Dutch police team arrived in Malta to aid with the investigation and representatives from the FBI also arrived. Three days after the murder of Daphne, Police Commissioner Lawrence Kutajar finally decided to call a press conference, his first one ever about this case. Flanked by Assistant Commissioners Silvio Valletta and Martin Samet, the Commissioner fielded question after question from the local and foreign press about the case and his own competence in handling the case. The issue was he answered practically none of them, insisting that he did not want to compromise the ongoing magisterial inquiry. This meant that a lot of criticism came his way and calls from the local press to resign. On the 20th of October, Pope Francis extended his condolences to Daphne's family. On the 21st of October, the government of Malta offered a 1 million euro reward for information which would catch the killers. Due to the lack of updates and apparent movement in the case, Maltese people feared that there was a cover-up which led to civil unrest in the country. Thousands gathered in the capital Valletta for a demonstration in honour of Daphne as the civil society network called for the removal of the police commissioner and attorney general. The following day, there was commotion in the Maltese parliament as the opposition called for the suspension of normal business to urgently focus on civil society's resignation calls. The effects of the assassination were now being felt at the European Parliament level. On the 24th of October, a minute's silence was held in European Parliament as the MEPs paid tribute to Daphne. The President, Antonio Tajani, called for Europol to be fully involved in the investigation. On the 26th of October, Europol officials arrived to assist Maltese police. So there was now four Dutch forensic officers, four members of the FBI, members of Scotland Yard and now Europol, the largest law enforcement network in Europe working on the case. Daphne's remains were released for burial on the 27th of October 2017. On the 3rd of November 2017, Daphne's funeral was held at Moster Church. At 1.48pm, to the tolling of the funeral bells, her coffin was carried onto the church's forecourt. Her visibly grief-stricken husband and three sons followed the coffin to applause. An applause that was not only audible on the forecourt, but carried on for ten minutes from the surrounding areas from the crowds present around the church. Archbishop Secluna delivered a short homily in which he directly addressed the assassins, journalists, the people 
and Daphne's children. Whilst imploring God to have mercy on her soul, the Archbishop said that although up to now it was not known who killed a mother and a journalist, they should repent before it was too late for them to do so. He warned them that they may escape man's justice, but they would not escape God's justice. Archbishop Secluna said that journalists are needed by society and he called on them not to be afraid and to continue their role as the eyes, ears and lips of the people without fear but with showing full respect to the truth. He said, society needs journalists who are free, intelligent, inquisitive, honest, tranquil and protected. Whilst consoling Daphne's children, the Archbishop called on them to be the children of the light. He said their mother had experienced a cruel death from a hidden hand that sought darkness rather than light because the scope of the killers had been so evil. As the coffin was carried out the church to the funeral hearse for its final journey and a private burial, there was great applause and cries of justice and Daphne. Mourners applauded and made V for victory signs and sung the national anthem as the coffin was carried into the hearse. It wasn't until late November that the task force eventually had a breakthrough. On a ridge southeast of Benicia stands an old gun emplacement known as the Targa Battery, a relic from fortifications the British built in the 19th century. Nearby lived Charles Samet, who was a farmer. Though he was no friend of Daphne, as they disagreed over political views, he eventually played a crucial role in the police investigation into her death. He reported to the police that in the weeks before and on the day of the bombing, a suspicious white Peugeot had parked near the battery. Close by was a stone wall that both shields anyone from view and gives a clear line of sight to Daphne's house and the road leading from it. At that wall, investigators found a cigarette butt on which was the DNA of a man named Alfred de Giorgio. But did this person have anything to do with Daphne's murder, or was his most serious crime littering? From that vantage point, anyone could look over Benidja. Someone could have watched every coming and going from Daphne's family home, which sat on a slope down from the village. Anyone near the old gun emplacement could have watched her. Also in view from the battery was a series of mobile phone towers dotted across the landscape. Now everyone who listens to true crime podcasts know about the importance of cell tower analysis. Police ordered Malta's two main mobile phone companies to hand over all records of network activity near Benidja. 
they looked at all the calls in the area beginning at 6.30pm on Sunday the 15th of October when her son Matthew had driven Daphne's car home and parked it on the gravel lane outside. It was data from those towers that Maltese investigators aided by the Cellular Analysis Survey Team of the US Federal Bureau of Investigation used to piece together what had happened. Police had identified a SIM card with the number ending 3752 that was active in the Benidja area until it got a text message at 1458 and 55 seconds. The moment the bomb in Daphne's car exploded. At that point, the SIM disappeared and records of its activity stopped. Police believe this SIM was used to detonate the bomb, which analysis of the debris suggested was placed inside the car under Daphne's seat. Based on Vodafone records, police concluded this trigger SIM had not been slotted into a mobile phone, but into a gadget called a SIM 900A that is sold to hobbyists for controlling domestic appliances, such as lights by text message. Police nicknamed this gadget the God Device. Investigators said they followed a trail from the detonator SIM through phone records that led them to identify the suspects of Daphne's murder. Police believed a simple text was sent to set the bomb off. That text, they said, came from a SIM card with the number ending 4366 used in a cheap Nokia mobile phone. Unfortunately, like the God device, this trigger phone was not registered to any person. It was a burner phone, hard to trace and cheap enough to throw away once used. Even so, there were clues. On the day of the bombing, the police said that the trigger phone was mostly connected to mobile phone towers that faced the sea. When it sent the trigger text, the phone was connected to a tower just inside the Grand Harbour of Malta's capital, Valletta. Near that tower was a CCTV camera monitoring the port and one of the boats it filmed was a motor yacht named Maya. At that point, the murder investigation took an unexpected twist. Malta's spy agency, the Malta Security Services, contacted the police and said it had been monitoring the Maya and could identify a man seen on board. That man, the spy agency said, was George de Giorgio, the brother of Alfred de Giorgio, whose DNA was identified on the cigarette butt found on the ridge overlooking Daphne's house. From there, the police were able to build a case accusing Alfred de Giorgio and his brother George and a man named Vince Muscat of carrying out the murder of Daphne. 
Just a quick side note here, Muscat is a very common name in Malta, and Vince Muscat has no relation to the Prime Minister of the same surname. The three suspects were already known to the police and were among alleged crime figures who had been questioned about other violent incidents including bombings on the island in the past few years. Everything appeared to be falling into place. George De Giorgio, his brother and Vince Muscat were known to hang out at a dilapidated warehouse right on the dockside of Valletta Harbour that had once been a potato store. George De Giorgio had a Samsung Galaxy phone registered in his name which had been tapped by the spy agency monitoring the Maya. Records of that phone tap and network data indicated that throughout the day of Daphne's murder, George's Samsung Galaxy, the trigger phone and another burner phone with the number ending 8824 were all in the same place as the yacht Maya. Police analysed the history of the burner phone 8824 and discovered it was only ever used to contact two other burner phones one allegedly used by Alfred de Giorgio and the other allegedly used by Vince Muscat. All three phones had SIM cards purchased in 2016 but only activated on August the 19th, 2017, three months before Daphne's death. Lead investigator Keith Arnold pieced together how the murder was planned and executed. The records of these three burner phones showed their users had regularly visited Daphne's village in the days before the attacks. The victim had been followed for weeks, the lead investigator said. In the early hours of October the 16th, the phones were active again in Daphne's village Police believe it was when the bomb was planted. The God device attached to the bomb was turned on in the Bidnuccia area at 1.41am. Police believed that a burner phone which they say was used by Vince Muscat was one of those in the village that night. At 6.14am the trigger phone was turned on. The police allege that Alfred de Giorgio, on lookout on the ridge above Benidja, rang his brother's burner phone, but the call was swiftly disconnected as, if you remember, Daphne had gone back inside to get the checkbook that she had forgotten. Two minutes later, she went outside again. The burner phone that police say Alfred de Giorgio was using on lookout called again this time for 1 minute and 47 seconds. Police believe that while he talked and described her movements, his brother George, standing on the yacht, pressed send on the trigger phone, dispatching the fatal text to the God device that in turn detonated the bomb. The explosion 
must have been heard live on the call. On Monday the 4th of December 2017, seven weeks to the day after the assassination of Daphne, the police were ready to arrest their suspects. The arrests were coordinated among the police corps, the armed forces of Malta and the security services. As well as in Valletta, raids in the areas of Marza, Zeeburg and Bujaba were coordinated. The ten suspects that were arrested were all Maltese nationals, with at least some of them known to the police. Among those arrested at the warehouse in Valletta were Alfred and George de Giorgio, as well as Vince Muscat. The following day, the three men were charged with manufacturing a bomb, killing Daphne, with taking part in organised crime, as well as possession of explosives. The three sat motionless in the dock, with their heads lowered before Magistrate Neville Camilleri as the charges were read out. They were remanded to jail, awaiting trial. It wasn't until 2019, however, that the case took an unexpected turn. And that was an apparent middleman. Melvin Thuma sat inside a police depot, clinging on to a Smiles ice cream box on November the 14th, 2019. He knew he only had one play, and that was leverage the contents of his ice cream box. It was containing hours of secret recordings, shedding light on the murder plot. He would exchange them for immunity from prosecution. Thuma knew that the odds were stacked against him. He had been arrested in an anti-money laundering investigation that had been simmering away for months. So at the police station, Thuma drafted a handwritten note. I, Melvin Thuma, am providing this information that I was the middleman in the case concerning Miss Caruana Galizia. I am relaying this proof so that you will know who hired me and paid for the bomb. I am doing this because I realised that the two people, Jürgen Fenech and Keith Shembury, were working to get rid of me as well. So I prepared this proof so that if I am eliminated, you will know the entire story. Before we move on to the contents of the ice cream box, I need to answer a question which I'm sure is burning in some of your minds. So what was Thuma's issues with Daphne? And the honest truth was that he had none. Melvin Thuma held no animosity towards Daphne whatsoever. He couldn't understand English, He'd never read anything she'd written. Their lives had only intersected once. Daphne's tyres had been slashed near the Hilton at Porto Masso, a private complex of luxury apartments where Thuma had reserved a taxi spot. 
he saw her there stranded and offered her a lift home. He had unfortunately become the middleman in his mid-twenties when he was acting as a bookmaker at Mars's horse racing track. There he befriended Jorgen Fenech, the grandson of a Russian oligarch who was roughly the same age. He would go on to act as the businessman's personal gopher. Jürgen Fenich was known as a casino owner and hotelier in Malta. He was identified in 2018 as being the owner of the Dubai registered company 17 Black. The company was listed in the Panama Papers and Daphne had written about 17 Black eight months before her death, alleging that the company had links to Joseph Muscat's chief of staff, Keith Shembury, and to former energy minister, Conrad Mizzi. Later, the research group, the Daphne Project, came across emails between 17 Black and two shell companies in Panama belonging to Mizzi and Shembury. The emails mention payments of up to $2 million for unspecified services. The contents of these secret recordings implicated Jürgen Fenich in the murder and, although it was not known at the time, it would ultimately bring down Prime Minister Joseph Muscat and his all-powerful right-hand man, Keith Shembury. Thuma got his wish as Prime Minister Joseph Muscat signed a letter that assured a presidential pardon to ensure that the mastermind behind the murder would be revealed. Thuma had long been urged by Fenich and his associate Johan Cremona to get rid of any incriminating evidence before the police swooped in under the pretense of a money laundering raid. So what was the contents of the ice cream box? Flash drives of conversations Thuma and Fenech had had. One day, early in the spring of 2017, Fenech summoned Thuma to a restaurant in Portomasso and asked if he knew how to get in contact with George the Chinese, the street name for George de Giorgio who was known in Marza as a hitman. I know him, but not in touch with him, Thuma replied. Get his contact, Finich said. Get him to kill Daphne Caruana Galizia. He added that Daphne was going to publish damaging information about his uncle Raymond, who presided over the family business empire and whose name appeared in the Panama Papers more than 50 times. Thuma called and asked to Giorgio's brother, Alfred, who only had one question. Does this guy pay? The de Giorgio brothers wanted 150,000 euros. Fenech agreed, but then told Thuma to have the hitmen stand down. Prime Minister Muscat was up for re-election that June. 
It was as if Fenich thought it too risky to kill Daphne before another term was secured. In May, Fenich told Thuma to go to the office of the Prime Minister where he was greeted by Shembri. After Shembri gave him a brief tour, they posed for a photograph together. Then Shembri called a subordinate and told him to talk to Thuma about a job. The interview lasted two minutes. I already have a job, Thuma said. Nevertheless, he was put on the government payroll. I never even went into work, he later said. I have no idea what my job was. But Thuma was awestruck. He felt as if he had been welcomed into the centre of state power. Muscat's chief of staff had made him an espresso. No one mentioned Daphne or the pending contract with the De Giorgios, but Thuma interpreted the fake job as payment for his role as the middleman and as assurance that the government had his back. In June, Muscat had won a second term. That night, Fenech called Thuma drunk. The hit was back on, he said. Move. As mentioned earlier, the De Giorgio brothers trailed Daphne and her husband and surveilled the house. They had tried to establish her patterns of movement, but she mostly stayed at home. They bought a rifle and a scope and set up sandbanks to stabilise the weapon against the wall by the battery which looked out across the valley where they had a clear view into her living room. But it was a long shot and they decided on a car bomb instead. As the summer dragged on, Fenech urged Thuma to get the De Giorgios to hurry up saying that he had tied up every loose end on a deal, everyone but Daphne. Thuma then realised that Fenech wasn't doing this to protect his uncle, he was doing it to protect himself. Once the De Giorgios had killed Daphne, Thuma handed them €150,000 in cash. But Thuma started to unravel after learning that the FBI was involved in the investigation. Thuma rushed to Malta's only skyscraper, the Portomasso Business Centre in St Julian, where on the 21st floor he found Fenech in a meeting with an Azerbaijani who had a stake in Muscat's power station. I'm scared, Thuma said. Fenech assured him, that the Americans would only play a supporting role in the investigation. The Maltese police would handle the case. But again, as I explained earlier, the FBI team easily identified the DeGiorgios from cell tower data. Although the DeGiorgios had used burner phones, they had travelled to Benidja with their own personal phones too which had pinged off the same towers. Five weeks after the murder, Fenech called Thuma, alerting him to a problem. 
a source with total access to the investigation, had passed along some information. The FBI had found the detonating text message, which had simply stated, REL1 equals on. Fenech told Thuma to notify the DiGiorgios that they would be arrested along with their accomplice Vince Muscat. The brothers tossed their phones into the harbour and waited calmly for the raid. A week later on the 4th of December, the Maltese army and police stormed the DiGiorgios' hideout, an abandoned dockside potato shed with fish skeletons hanging from the ceiling. The brothers pleaded not guilty and refused to answer any questions from the police. The day after the revelation of his involvement, Fenech was arrested as he was trying to flee the country. Witnesses said that the luxury yacht Geo was intercepted by an armed forces of Malta patrol boat shortly after it left Portomasso Marina in St Julian around 5.30am. Data from a tracking website, Vessel Finder, showed that the yacht was back at shore within an hour of departing. Fenech was believed to be en route to Italy, however, that was not believed to be his final destination. Video footage from inside the marina showed Armed Forces Malta personnel combing the docked vessel at Portomasso. They left the yacht at 8.20am. Due to the links of two of his senior cabinet members to the murder plot, there were calls for Joseph Mascat to resign as Prime Minister as his position had become untenable. Soon after his arrest, Jorgen Fenech resigned from the Electrogas Board of Directors and also resigned from his post as Director and Legal and Judicial Representative of the Tumas Group Company Limited as well as other subsidiary companies. Eventually, the government had to cave to pressure and Keith Shembury resigned as Muscat's Chief of Staff whilst Conrad Mizzy resigned from his ministerial post on what became infamously known as 17 Black Tuesday, the 26th of November 2019. Mounting pressure from the press, protesters and government ministers forced those at the top to take the aforementioned decisions. However, protesters had had enough of the situation on the islands and due to Prime Minister Joseph Muscat's actions over the years, or rather, inactions on issues such as the Panama Papers, there were calls for the Prime Minister's resignation. On the 29th of November 2019, Jürgen French was charged in a Valletta court with complicity to murder. Fenech pleaded not guilty to the charge of complicity to murder and other related charges to the case, which included membership of a criminal gang and conspiracy to cause an explosion. Dressed in a charcoal suit and dark glasses, shaven-headed Fenech stood up to hear the charges in a hushed courtroom 
less than a metre away from the three sons of Daphne, who were joined in the courtroom by her husband Peter and her parents Michael and Rose Vella and her sisters. Anti-corruption protests dominated the news towards the end of November as well as in December with large groups of protesters calling for resignations of several prominent people in the government. In the middle of all of this, former Minister Chris Cardona had suspended himself after he was questioned by the police. He feared he was being framed for the murder and had even written a letter to the Speaker of the House asking for parliamentary protection. Shembury was also being questioned. On the 1st of December 2019, in a televised speech to the nation, Prime Minister Joseph Muscat announced that he was due to resign on the 12th of January 2020, giving time for the Labour Party to elect a new leader. On the 5th of December, Fenwick had claimed in court during a constitutional case he had pressed to have Inspector Keith Arnold removed from the murder investigation and that the Prime Minister's former Chief of Staff, Keith Shembury, had kept him continuously informed of the progress in Daphne's murder investigation. This allegation would later be denied by Shembury. The public inquiry into the assassination of Daphne Caruana Galizia held its first sitting in the court on the 6th of December 2019. Throughout the course of the compilation of evidence against Fenwick, as well as the public inquiry, more and more shocking information was revealed. Eventually, middleman Melvin Thuma testified, and it became known that he had secretly recorded many conversations he had had with Fenwick. In early 2020, the reigning Labour Party elected itself a new leader. The police commissioner, Lawrence Kutajar, resigned soon after Robert Abler became Prime Minister. On the 19th of January, former police deputy commissioner, Silvio Valletta, confirmed that he had travelled with Jürgen French to the UK in 2018, just months after he had been removed from the murder investigation. It was revealed on the 29th of September 2018 he had travelled to London with Fenwick to watch a football match, Chelsea versus Liverpool. Valletta had said that he would never have travelled abroad with someone he knew or thought was being investigated and also said that he had not known of Fenech's involvement in the case. Just a few days later, it was revealed that this was not the only trip the two had taken together, and they had travelled together to the final of the Champions League in May 2018, which was held in Kiev in Ukraine. The news resulted in the resignation of Justine Caruana, the Gozo minister. The House of Cards was starting to fall. As they were, however, with the rest of the world, everything came to a screeching halt due to the global pandemic. It all restarted again in early 2021. 
In February 2021, Vincent Muscat pled guilty to his involvement in Daphne's case and was given a reduced sentence of 15 years and must pay €42,930 in court costs within three years as well. Muscat admitted to all six parts of the indictment. These were the willful homicide of Daphne, causing an explosion which led to the death of a person, illegal possession of explosives, conspiracy to carry out a crime, promotion of a group intending to carry out criminal acts and participation in such group. Vincent Muscat said under oath that the former economy minister Chris Cardona and former chief of staff Keith Shembury knew about the assassination plot prior to it being executed and that the former deputy police commissioner Silvio Valletta had provided information on the journalists' whereabouts. According to Muscat, who repeatedly reminded the magistrate that all he knows was from conversations with Alfred de Giorgio, Cardona had provided de Giorgio with information on Daphne's whereabouts, obtained through a high-profile lawyer whose name was banned from publication by the court of the letter. In her judgment, Judge Edwina Grimmer said, Over the course of today's sitting, the court heard the testimony of Inspector Keith Arnold, who explained in detail the cooperation of the accused Vincent Muscat in the still ongoing investigations into the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia. It heard that this cooperation has been ongoing since 2018 and continues till this day, with the accused Vincent Muscat assisting authorities from a relatively early stage of these proceedings, wherein this assistance may also result in the start of prosecution against third parties. The court also heard from Dr Jason Azopardi, the lawyer of the victim's family, who declared that the party civil is, in the light of the aforementioned circumstances, adhering to the bargain on the punishment agreed between the prosecution and the accused Vincent Muscat. Therefore, it is in light of these particular circumstances and the accused's assistance and cooperation during the course of these investigations and the prosecution of this case, as explained by Inspector Keith Arnold, the court feels that it should adhere with the joint request as presented by the parties today. As a result of the above, Muscat was sentenced to 15 years behind bars. Muscat also renounced his right to appeal meaning that his sentence was effective immediately. Eyes bloodshot and teary, Muscat was led away after speaking to his lawyer at the back of the room to the correctional facility at Caradino, where he will spend the next 15 years behind bars. He'll be scheduled for release in 2036. 
As a result of the information provided, three men believed to have supplied the bomb were arrested. Adrian Aduce, Robert Aduce and Jamie Vella. The Aduce brothers were known as Tal Maxa and were among the ten people who were arrested in December 2017. Daphne had written about Adrian Aduce in the past given that he was the business partner of Ryan Shembury, the former owner of Moore Supermarkets who fled Malta with his family in 2014 to escape loan sharks whom he owed a million euros. Ryan Shembury is the cousin of Keith Shembury, the Chief of Staff to the former Prime Minister Joseph Muscat, with his own links to murder. Carmel Shercop was murdered on the 8th of October 2015, found dead in a multi-storey car park with four bullet wounds to the upper part of his torso. He was one of the investors in Moore Supermarkets, a chain which had eventually gone bankrupt. He had loaned the company which had involved Adrian Aduce 750,000 euros. The issue was eventually settled out of court. In one post, Daphne had also cited how his father Raymond Aduce, a smuggler, was shot in the head by hitmen at the Butterfly Bar in Bukakara in 2008. A murder that remains unsolved to this day. She also linked him to the disappearance of Terence Gialance, who vanished off the face of the earth in 2012 after telling his family he was going fishing. The trials for Jorgen Fenech and the Zsorgio brothers are still pending and, as of March this year, were said to be still two to three years away whilst they exhaust all of the possible appeals to their arrest and requests for presidential pardons. I think that you will agree that there is a significant confusing web still to sift through though. If there are any updates, then I will of course let you know in due course. There is so much more to this case that I simply cannot cover or we will be here till Christmas. The work that Daphne's sons continue to do to keep the name of their mother and her legacy alive. The number of liable cases that have been brought against Daphne. The other controversies which Daphne had uncovered. Malta is definitely a beautiful historical place, but corruption is rife. To end this week's episode, I just want to give you one small interesting fact. For those of you who picked up on my line of duty reference at the start of the show, that wasn't by accident. For those of you who have seen the most recent series, you will remember the victim, Gail Vella. Gail Vella, who was murdered getting out of her Peugeot 108. Gail Vella, the tell-all journalist who subsequently was killed for her unearthing the truth. <laughs>
Jeb Mercurio, the creator of the show, stated that he took significant inspiration from Daphne's story when creating the character. Vela Daphne's maiden name So that's it for this week's episode. Once again, thank you so much for your amazing support and loyalty. It really does mean a lot to me. Apologies that this episode is slightly late. In case you don't follow me on social media, Georgie was discharged from oxygen which has resulted in not much sleep over the last fortnight. Subsequently, please make sure that you follow me on one of the social media platforms for regular updates on the show. On Twitter, it is at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. And just a reminder, for the current three months that I'm in, I will be donating all the Patreon fees to the charities that helped Georgie while she was in hospital. I also have an Instagram page, so please search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. <laughs>